Today, we return to our comic book feuds, the beefs that defined us. We bring you back to 1992 and a controversial cover, a controversial interview with a controversial creator. Except, I I just didn't feel that controversial at this time. Yes, it's the creator of Deadpool, Cable, X-Force, Image Founder, your host, Rob Liefeld, versus Wizard Magazine, Image, Marvel, drama to share and to spare on an all-new episode of Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. My background, in case you have never ever heard or encountered me before, and this is your first Observations. I write and draw comics and have done so for 37 years. I am notable for creating X-Force, for reviving New Mutants, creating Deadpool, Cable, Shatterstar, Domino, uh, starting Image Comics with my peers, Youngblood, Brigade, Supreme, Prophet, Glory, Evangeline. In in recent years, uh, Snake Eyes Dead Game uh, really blew the doors off of the G.I. Joe franchise. Uh, Much, much uh, credit and uh, humble just uh, thanks to Hasbro for, for trusting me, one of their most important assets uh, in Snake Eyes. Uh, Major X was a brand new character miniseries I did for Marvel. This spring summer, I have the sequel to the best-selling number one charting Deadpool Bad Blood called Deadpool. Wait for it. Batter Blood. Deadpool Batter Blood will be coming your way in June. And that runs five issues. It's got Wolverine. It's got Cable. It's got the return of the uh, villain that I introduced uh for Deadpool in Deadpool Bad Blood name Thumper. It has so many of your favorites along the way. Venom Pool. I am a huge Venom Pool fan and get to really uh, put some good mileage on him in this adventure as well. So I, I, I highly recommend that you uh, give that, at least check it out when it comes out in June. Really happy to have it finally make it into people's hands. And that is my immediate kind of background, sums it up. I have produced comics, written comics, drawn comics, inked comics, printed comics. I've pretty much run the entire gamut for three decades plus seven years, 37 years again, and I love it. I am in love with comics, and I am in love with all the ways that comics have expanded into the greater pop culture realm, and that's what we talk about on each and every episode of Raw Observations. I was seven years old, 1974, when my love affair, my monthly fix with comics, uh, really came into focus. I had gotten scattered comics prior to that. Casper, The Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, The Archies, uh, The Archie Gang. I had gotten scattered issues of Superman, Superboy, but with Marvel and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men, my love affair was off to the races. I never looked back, was fortunate enough to graduate high school and make comics my full-time career when I was a teenager. And uh, here we are. This podcast uh, exists to, to walk you through not only my history, with comic books as a fan, but my history with comic books as a professional, all the different people that I have gotten to know and work alongside, uh, different, different, uh, you know, different stops along the journey into the, the realms of video games and films and television and cartoons. And we mix it all up and, and we talk about it here on Rob Observations. One of the most popular forums that we can discuss here on Rob Observations is our feuds, our, 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 our comic book feuds, because sometimes it's like the real world when you put all these people together and they start being real. Well, real problems come out. Not every creator 
likes one another. Some creators value themselves above uh, above others, way above others, and they have no problem telling you. I have cited several interviews, and we've shared them over the years of of uh, pencilers who I actually I'm not not just pencilers, creators, comic book creators, writer and slash artists uh, who have done tremendous work, but they just can cannot resist the opportunity to take shots at others. Um, there's a couple guys who like belong on the murderer's row of kind of um, interviewers uh, w- w- with, with uh, super flex, which is a nice way of, of, of uh, accentuating the, the extreme arrogance and, and pomp that they bring to their interviews. But nonetheless, these things, they, they run, they run big. I've brought some that I myself have been involved in as well. Todd McFarland did an infamous uh, interview with me in the Comics Journal. I shared that, I think, a year, year and a half ago on the, during the second season of Raw Observations. He was mad. He was hot. He wanted to take shots at me, and he does so the entire time. On the flip side, I had been given great advice to uh, not take the bait and to just wish everyone well and uh, not engage in banter or insults. And at the time, it, it, the, the interviews played alongside each other in the Comics Journal, and it's a great yin and yang. You should hunt down... Some of these feud episodes of Raw Observations, you will most definitely be uh, entertained. One of the great things that I can give you as a result of me, <laughs> of me being somewhat of a comic book hoarder is I am able to give you uh, interviews, date them, uh, bring what you call the receipts, you know, give you the, the, the year, the month, the issue, the publication, and just read directly from the pages because these are really important time capsules. It's not always about feuds either. It's about thought processes. It's about uh, what goes into the imagination, the challenge, and and the formation of some of our favorite works. We, we, we've covered that with all manner of different creators and different bodies of work. I've, I've been able to introduce you guys to maybe some talents you've never heard of before. And I know this because you talk back at me and you tell them, hey, I've never heard of this talent before. I was so gr- glad to have um, heard it on your show. The raw observations effect is a real thing. I've been I've been uh, happy enough to experience it. Uh, people telling me that that works that we've discussed on on the show are then hunted down and become maybe harder to get in some cases because the spotlight is shared on them. I love all the comic books and I like to share the light on each and every uh, different era. Today we're going to cover a specific era and a feud to boost. Uh, it's the '90s. The '90s has uh, been determined by me at least. Uh, it's not my favorite era, but it's most of the listeners who listen to this podcast, they were teenagers at the time. That's a formative year. That's a formative bond that you make. It's when your uh, you know, love really comes into full bloom. When you start making comic books a priority, you started allocating whatever funds that you were given, just like I did, your allowances, your lunch money, whatever you start um, pinching pennies wherever you can to afford the comic books that were coming out in the 1990s. There was a lot of exciting stuff. There were a lot of new characters. Uh, Marvel has done omnibuses on like the characters of the nineties. I think there's, there's two of them, no less, or two, two paperbacks. And together they made one omnibus. And, uh, because there, it was a time of real excitement. It was a time of, of, of kids of that generation growing up and coming into their own. Now to this day, I am, you know, no surprise, still the youngest of the image founders that, uh, demarcation is is only important when I see that someone is turning 61 and then I have to count seven years back to get to me or six years back to get to me. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm still the baby of this group. And then, you know, this just an aside recently, 
I found out that both Andy and Adam Kubert are older than me. I, I, I could have sworn that they were both younger than me, but they're both several years older than me, which just I've always for, for 30 years thought that I was at least one of their uh, seniors, but I am not. So, you know, as, as our, our group ages, you have to remember, we all kind of broke in around the same time. Uh, Todd McFarlane, probably seven, eight years older than I am. Uh, Jim Lee, five. Mark Silvestri, give or take, eight to ten. Same with Valentino. Eric Larson, maybe four, five years. So, again, you know, and I, I've openly discussed this in different forums. You know, I was the youngest and, and not quite as if mature at all. I was not as mature if mature at all. I've, I've uh, broken this down. The interesting thing about today's specific uh podcast is it's kind of a kissing cousin a uh, uh a sister podcast to what's going on with comic the boys over at comics kayfabe right now both ed pisker and jim rugg know that i um huge fans of theirs i adore their work whether it's the uh history of hip-hop that that i first encountered ed pisker and then followed him to all his um right now currently the red room and uh you know his his uh history of the x-men that he was able to do over at Marvel that was put in all these fabulous, you know, formats. Then then you've got Jim Rugg, who I first came to know on Street Angel, which is the most kick-ass kind of punk rock, uh, cool action comic featuring, you know, uh, Street Angel. You got to check it out. It's kick-ass. Um, skateboards, roller skates, guns, knives, gang fights, locker rooms. Come on. It's the best. Uh, then he went on to do his, his Hulk History of the Hulk adaptation. They've both done these tremendous histories. And then their their uh, other studio mate, Tom Scioli, has done the same, the history of the Fantastic Four. And he, oh my gosh, I love Tom's work. Uh, too much to mention, but G.I. Joe versus Transformers that he did for IDW about a decade back was mind-blowingly awesome and, and was really something that inspired me to go and uh, say yes when when Hasbro came a knock and, and IDW said, hey, we would would you consider doing something with G.I. Joe? And because I had seen what Tom had done, it really blew my mind. So these guys, they're from Pittsburgh. They they have a uh, uh, killer. Ed Ed and uh, Jim have this killer comics fab, kayfabe uh, podcast, video cast, and they asked me to be a guest on it. And you're going to see two episodes this week, I believe. One in what I, which I break down New Mutants 87, and the other one is where I break down New Mutants 98. And they both identify those as key parts of their youth and key parts of fandom and key parts of kind of the comic book business at the time. And it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to argue that um, having been a part of that at the time and watching the comics industry change and shift. And there were some growing pains because the uh, sales advantage advantages, the popularity was shifting to my generation away from the generation that we grew up loving and the generation that kind of, you know, made us want to do what we want to do. We wanted to be Frank Miller and John Byrne and Jim Starlin and Howard Chaikin and Walt Simonson. Uh, we wanted to be those guys. And, and, and then suddenly you wake up and you're outselling uh, the people that you, you know, th- th- that inspired you in the first place. Well, along the way, some eggs get broken, some, some feelings get hurt, some truths are revealed. And part of what we're going to go over today is a very contentious interview that happens that will kind of encapsulate this entire period uh it it, it, it's a semi-controversial uh issue of the wizard just from the fact that the cover in and of itself set off a bunch of alarms 
let me tell you guys, sometimes you don't understand the true imprint, the footprint, the impact uh, until the years go by. I, 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 I do really believe this. Watching Pau Gasol, who I had watched uh, be really competitive with the, with the Memphis Grizzlies, and uh, you know, then he got traded to the Lakers, and I was so excited because I knew what an extreme talent he was, and then he won uh, back-to-back rings with Kobe Bryant and Lamar Odom and Ron Artest and uh, Derek Fisher. It was a really exciting time for the Lakers. And when he got, uh, he went to three back-to-back finals and then they, they won, you know, the 09 and the 010 and the 2010 championships after losing the 08 to the Celtics. And then the rematch was to the Celtics in 2010. So it was a pretty, pretty amazing time if you're an NBA fan, especially if you're a Laker fan, as I've been since I've lived in Southern California my entire life. And I was a huge Laker fan from the time that, you know, Showtime hit the scene and Magic Johnson got drafted. Watched those games with my dad, watched them late at night and, and, and replays, um, you know, because again, it, the NBA was not the thing that it was today. But the reason I'm bringing up Pau Gasol is he had a Hall of Fame ceremony a couple weeks back uh, over at Crypto Arena in, in uh, formerly Staples Center. And it was very emotional. And the entire, you know, uh, squad really came back. Obviously, Kobe Bryant is no longer with us. His spirit was there. His family was there. But I could see Powell looking back on his career now that he had been retired for, you know, six plus years. He had a different viewpoint and he hadn't been with the Lakers for almost a decade. So it was even, I think, more bittersweet, but you could tell it meant more to Powell. It definitely meant more to Powell. The the passage of time changes the way you look at things. And whether it's an athlete, a politician, an entertainer, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely believe as I followed so many different careers of all the different artists that I like. I think the Eagles, the, the, the bands that I, that I grew up with liking, you know, uh, the Doobie Brothers, Fleetwood Mac, yeah, I'm dating myself, but then I can jump forward and do all the hair metal bands that I totally dug, like Skid Row and Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and Poison. And, you know, as time passes and these bands reunite, I mean, the surviving members of Nirvana when they get together, I think they view the period that they were in in a much different light now. I don't think they knew what to make of it at the time. And I think some of what was going on at the time in comic books was the same. I didn't know what to make of it. But when I did this cover, because Wizard Magazine had been saying, hey, we want to do a spotlight on you, and Wizard's top 10 and their hot markets had been reflecting my impact in the business as a 22, 23-year-old kid. That's how old I was. I was 22 when Wizard launched. My son right now is in his first year with his business firm, having graduated uh, Baylor University. He is 22 years old. So it, often I look at him and I see how young I was. And again, I did not realize that I felt like I was old and mature and I was doing all these amazing accomplishments, but I, 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 I wanted to be older. And there are people at extreme that said, no, you always used to say, Rob, you can't wait to be, you can't wait until you're older because people will look at you differently. I, 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 I guess I, I walked up and down the extreme hallway saying this, but I was aware, I was aware of how young I was perceived, but Wizard wanted to do a interview, a feature with me, do a trading card. There's a Youngblood Zero trading card still embedded in my copy. This is Youngblood, I'm sorry, this is Wizard Magazine number 10. So their 10th issue, they're not even a year old, but they had scheduled this. And look, getting a a fan publication uh, to do an article on you was was nothing new. I I'd grown up with all my favorites, all the ones that I had already mentioned, whether it was George Perez or Frank Miller. And I'm going to isolate those two because both of those gentlemen had done publications about their work 
where they combined the work that they did with Marvel and DC in one image. On Focus on George Perez, uh, a giant kind of history of George Perez's career in the business, uh, published by Fantagraphics, not published by Marvel, not published by DC Comics. The cover of Focus on George Perez features Marvel and DC characters uh, side by side uh, on the same page. Avengers, Justice League, uh, you know, you, you've got the Titans, uh, Firestorm. I mean, everybody's matched up on the cover. It's, it's, a, it's a shared experience. It's like his, it's a reflection of his career. So you see Marvel stuff, you see DC stuff. Frank Miller did an amazing Heroes cover, which was kind of the darling of its day prior to Wizard. It was the Wizard of its day. It was the premier interview magazine. Frank Miller did a cover with Batman and Elektra side by side. Batman and Elektra. So you got, this is during the Dark Knight period, okay? And you got, whoa, Elektra, Marvel's Elektra, and she's got her swords out and she's back to back with with Batman. It's exciting. It's killer. It's awesome. It was kind of a, oh, oh, the treat to the fans that you get to see just for that minute, that shared experience, that, oh man, we're getting to see him draw both. They can't have an adventure together. But certainly his influence, his influence being Frank Miller's or George Prez in this incident being, you know, felt in these killer, you know, side by side, two different publishers, two different characters. It was exciting. So when it came time for me to do the wizard interview, I did a cover where Shaft, the leader of my Youngblood team that was just set to launch was standing alongside Cable, who has his guns lifted up. And I put the stars behind them and made it, that was kind of the motif for the wizard at the time. They wanted the stars behind them, at least for the very first year. It was kind of this uh, ongoing, uh, consistent motif they had. And and uh, Shaft and Cable, I thought this would be cool. The fans will dig this. And I didn't think anybody would mind. So I handed it in, and in preparation of doing the interview. And then lo and behold, while I am drawing Youngblood and X-Force, because again, and you'll see in this interview, I confirm, like, I did not leave X-Force until several months after Youngblood was published out. Um, I am still, I believe, the plotter on X-Force through maybe issue 13, 14. If I'm wrong, I'm off by maybe an issue, but I am still the plotter. The the, uh, the Those are my stories that are being drawn by Mark Pacella, and then the script and dialogue is still by the scripter and the dialoguer. So I I stay with it. I stay with them. And, and you'll see in this interview, I identify kind of what I see as my responsibilities going forward to X-Force while I'm doing Youngblood. Well, putting Shaft and Cable together seemed harmless to me again, because I'm only following in what I have seen come before. But this is where you really start to understand that the rules were changing and not everybody had the same viewpoint and the old standards were not going to be the same standards for someone like myself. So I get a call from Wizard Magazine from Garib Seamus who's publishing it and he says, we're in a lot of trouble. I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? Who's we? He's like, well, Marvel's not happy with you and, and we may not be able to run this cover. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, well, we ran this by them to clear and they flipped out the fact that Shaft is sharing the cover with Cable. They don't want to be promoting Youngblood. And I just said, hmm, that's interesting. No one, no one at Marvel had mentioned it to me. And to this day, I didn't bring it up with Marvel. It's not my business. Uh, Wizard asked me to do a cover. I did a cover for Wizard. I didn't do a cover for Marvel. I didn't do a cover for Image. I did a cover for Wizard. But it was at that time because, you know, things were getting tense. 
And one of the things that I talk about with the kayfabe guys on their uh, on their uh, two different episodes that we do with New Mutants 87 and New Mutants 98, I talk about how I always had a really good relationship with Marvel. But there was a period where like, you know, I didn't know who I was talking to and I didn't know who was running the, running the show because sometimes Jim Lee would call me up and tell me what was going on in the X-Men office and kind of what covers I was getting and kind of was, uh, you know, giving me information, news, assignments. And, you know, I'd be called up and say, hey, I know you got a future super soldier in the book, but we're, we're introducing a future uh, soldier slash cop in ours. Hope you don't mind. And I'm like, but I, you know, thought I was doing something special. Then I, I cover with them on one of the episodes. You'll, you'll see it's upcoming uh, that I, I found out from Jim Liu who said, hey, I just want to call and let you know you're, you're getting the five trading cards on X-Force number one. I'm getting the, uh, the several covers that make one image and then one cover that collects them all. Because I had submitted to do what's called a, like a triptych, a multi, multi, you know, set cover with different images. And I'll tell you what I told the kayfabe guys. I was excited. Wait, I get the trading cards? I didn't even know there was trading cards to have. Like, I didn't know that was an option. I was excited. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was uh, being let down. I thought, wow, this is great. But it was delivered to me and like, hey, 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 you don't get to get this other thing. Because uh, I figured on X-Men, I think it was 275, Jim had drawn a triptych, a, a, so three a gatefold. Sorry, a gatefold, triple gatefold cover, back cover, front cover, and then an inside cover that folded out. And I thought, man, I, I could do that for X-Force and then chop it up into different pieces and make one image. Well, apparently that's something that he wanted to do as well. And so they gave that to X-Men, not a problem, you know, not, not even like, I was like, okay, fine. The trading cards was great. I thought this was great. But I found out from Jim, nobody from Marvel told me, editorial didn't tell me. I found out from Jim who was, seemed like he was in on it. And there's a facts that I had been sharing on my social media from the head of sales at the time who was talking about us taking yet another swing at trying to get X-Force pushed through, transferred from New Mutants to X-Force. The reason I'm telling you all this is it sets the stage for like, I was pushing, I was pressing with Marvel. So if it was something that um, was upsetting Marvel that I, you know, was not instigating in regards to like one of my assignments for them, I just stayed out of it. So, you know, wizard informing me that they were going to strip them of that cover i was like well you know just let me know this is out of my hands i don't have any sort of participation in wizard and they said well, we're, we're, well marvel's really making us sweat it and again i just said well i'll leave that to you you guys will let me know if you can run that cover or not eventually they did call and they said there were some concessions made one of which i know was that they could never reprint the cover which i didn't follow enough to know if they ever did reprint the cover uh but there was limitations around it, and I don't, I don't know what else went into it. But apparently, according to Wizard, Marvel gave them crazy sorts of hell. I'm so thankful that Marvel approved it. Because again, as I'm making very clear here, if Mar- Marvel does not approve it, and Marvel had every opportunity to cancel this cover opportunity, uh, had, had they not given it the green light, it doesn't happen. So at the end of the day, I'm grateful Marvel saw fit to let Cable and Shaft coincide on this cover. Because again, I, I'm just excited about the work that I'm doing. And I, I, I never really saw it that Cable was selling Shaft. And you'll see in this interview, I, I believe the thing that was working at the time was Rob Liefeld. And we've all been there when an artist 
whether it's a musician like Taylor Swift. I mean, go back 20 years, Kelly Clarkson right after American, after American Idol. Everything she did, everything she recorded was a hit. She was with the right productions. She picked the right material. She wrote the right material. I mean, Kelly Clarkson, Kelly Clarkson. I mean, good God, Steve Carell yells her out in the 40-year-old version. Kelly Clarkson! I mean, we all remember that. I mean, she was part of the, you know, she had, she had a very long moment. People have long moments. I speak of it in this interview. And again, I'm, I'm setting the stage for this. Uh, Eddie Murphy, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Artists go through period where the public is really digging what they do. Having taken New Mutants and flipped it and, and made it a bestseller and then flipped it and made an even better seller by naming it X-Force and then, you know, deciding to go out on my own and do more of my own stuff that I would own. I, I just felt like I was following my own momentum and I was being rewarded by the fans who kept buying more and more and more of what I did. Now you can say, well, that was happening with several artists. That's correct. They were rewarding Todd in that way, Jim in that way. We were being rewarded for um, our instincts, our vibes, our, you know, the talent that we were putting forth. So I felt like I'm, I'm just Rob Liefeld and Rob Liefeld had some cachet and I was, uh, you know, trading on whatever Rob Liefeld juice that I had been able to muster. And I'd seen it because there was a period where I'd, fo- I'd follow John Byrne off a cliff. I'd follow Frank Miller off a cliff. I'd follow fill in the blank off a cliff because you just get into digging those people's work. They give you exactly what you want. They continue to exceed or at least very least meet the expectations you have for them. And so that's where I was at, you know, during this period. So I didn't do the shaft cable thing and there was no uh, discussion again from my art my part to Marvel because I just wanted to take the temperature down at that time because I think they were already shocked that we were going to go in the direction that we were going to go with this stuff. And by, by this stuff, I mean leaving and making image comics, making a label, making a company for by artists for artists. And that obviously threatened their bottom line. But again, they, they allowed this to go through, but apparently they put wizard through the ringer. Well, so there it is. Wizard 10 cable shaft on the cover. It says Rob Liefeld interview at the top. In the uh, <clears throat> in the table of contents, it says our cover story spotlights the ever controversial Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld and Wizard editor Pat O'Neill go head to head in the most revealing interview we've ever published. Check it out on page twelve. Deadpool, the Deadpool uh, from New Mutants ninety eight is the big giant shot that they have on the table of contents page. So for those people who are like, hey, you know, D- Deadpool, I-, I I hear that. I like I love to retaliate. I I sometimes I'm surprised. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't need to say anything. The visuals are here. Deadpool is used um, multiple times in this interview, which is only a few months after his appearance. He is the exact same shot is used again in the center of the interview. Uh, again, Deadpool had tremendous impact, impacted fandom. And, and, and the first five, six appearances of Deadpool were completely and totally demanded by fans. Fans co-opted the Deadpool that they met, that I wrote and drew in New Mutants 98, and just carried from there. And again, you know, when a publication interviews you, they pick out the stuff that they want to, you know, decorate the art that they want to feature during the interview. And again, Deadpool is on the table contents page, and then he's... Uh, this pa- this interview starts again, like they said, on page 12. It goes page 
12, 13, 14, 15, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, okay? Uh, <clears throat> it says De- Deadpool is typical of the quirky personas Liefeld thrives on, which I th- think is an interesting take. Uh, this interview, again, I just want to go back to the table of contents page. The ever controversial Rob Liefeld, there's, let me, let me assure you something. I had done nothing controversial. The only thing that I had done is draw a miniseries for DC Comics, which got me noticed by the X-Men office, who offered me mutant work, which I immediately started doing in the form of X for, X, an X-Factor issue, an X-Men issue. Uh, X-Men 245 was the number one selling book the month it came out, just like most X-Men books, okay? So I, I went from Hawk and Dev to the best-selling title in the comics industry. X-Factor, top five title. Uh, I was doing stories for Marvel Comics Presents, which was a top 10 title. I did the New Mutants Annual. I did the Spider-Man title, a top 10 title. I'm, I am just very successful, very uh, in demand. I am telling you this because this is, New Mutants wasn't a book uh, that I, you know, necessarily wanted to do. I had to be talked into it. Uh, with the kayfabe guys, I, I I go through the list. I had turned down uh, Doctor Strange because they wouldn't let me do the Steve Ditko stuff. That's what I wanted to do. They wanted to make him an occult investigator. I thought that was a mistake. It turned out to be a mistake. The cover, the the that version of Doctor Strange had a very short shelf life. was was canceled, as I knew it would be. We don't want Doctor Strange investigating uh, other vampires, werewolves, and the occult. We want him battling Nightmare, uh, Dormammu, Baron Mordo, Baron Mordo. Uh, so, so I mean, that's that's uh, with Clea. I mean, that that's the stuff that I wanted to do. I wanted to really dig deep into the Ditko portfolio. That was a hard no, so I was out of it. Alpha Flight was something that they were offering that I could write and draw. And uh, part of that we'll cover in two different interviews because the Wizard interview is going to reference another interview from Comic Scene that I'm going to go and I'm going to dip into just so you have the the context that you need because the interviewer starts talking about that interview and referencing that interview and you need to know what was in that interview so i'm able to go back with you guys and walk you through this but i hadn't done anything controversial i had turned the new mutants from a hundred thousand selling book to a million selling book with the last issue of new mutants which went back for three different uh different reprints i've told you i repeat i'll repeat it again here it is the pride and joy my my i think greatest achievement uh, New Mutants 100 is just a comic. There's no acetate cover. There's no scratch and sniff. There's no glow in the dark. There's no trading card. There's no poly bag. It's just a comic. It It's a double-sized comic. It's expensive. It was an expensive comic, but it had 42 pages of story and art. You guys bought it up. It went back for a second printing and a third printing when those were not common. That was not common in 1991. The next force comes out, remember, and guys like Todd McFarlane who said, oh, but, but, I, I, I think I think you'll be lucky to do a mill. I mean, I mean, I, I would call a mill, like, I, I'd call it a day, like, that, that's a good day. Uh, but but I, 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 I don't think, it, 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 I, I can't see it selling more. What's an X-Force? I mean, people know what X-Men is, but what's an X-Force? That was my expectations. That's what people had had. We exceeded that. We sold 5 million copies. The second issue of X-Force 2, I love to tell you this, is 1.4 million copies. I mean, we just kept trucking. I hadn't done anything controversial. You want to know what was controversial about me? We're at the 30-minute mark of this podcast. What was controversial about me was that I was 22 and 23 years old, and I kept overachieving. I got everything that I asked, um, things that occasionally I demanded, things that I, I made sure that they adhered to. 
And the controversy was that, was that I was so old. You know, Todd McFarlane is 30. Jim Lee is 28. Eric Larson is 30. You know, Mark Celestri at this point is 32, 33. Jim Valentino is closing in on 40. I'm 22, and they, they make note of this in the interview that I'm 23 years old at the point that, that you know, young blood is happening. The controversy was that I was so young. I've seen this in sports my entire life. I've seen the young guys and they get all the pressure. And if they can over and if they can, you know, operate with that pressure and exceed in spite of that pressure that the media puts on them, then the media eventually backs off. For me, this was the the middle of the heat. Um the 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 Levi's commercial had been running. It started airing three months after X Force, no, around X Force Four, September of nineteen ninety one, which is four months after X Force number one. It started airing and it aired for 18 months. It went four cycles, which my, my wife and her sisters as triplets had, been a, had done a bunch of commercials. And they said, wow, two cycles is unheard of. Levi's kept renewing and I was the last of the button your fly campaigns. And some of you who grew up uh, and, and uh, who, who grew up watching MTV and watching sports, that button your fly ad played on basketball games. It played on MTV. It played on baseball games. It played on sports and music and, and, and entertainment all the time. First time I saw actually air, I was with a group of friends watching a basketball game, and it was pretty shocking. Uh, but again, my controversy is that I was young. That's it. I had done nothing more than be young and successful. And people like Patrick Daniel O'Neill, as you'll, um, or just Patrick O'Neill. Sorry, I put a Daniel in there. Maybe he's Patrick Daniel O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill. Yeah, it is Patrick Daniel O'Neill. <laughs> it says interview by Patrick Daniel. So, uh, the 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 name of the article it says a candid conversations with answers to tough questions with image comics rob liefeld by patrick daniel o'neill it starts off with um what is image comics tell us how it works I'm not going to bore you with that everybody knows what image comics is it's by artists for artists you keep your own stuff well <clears throat> the funny thing is about a page and a half patrick daniel o'neill and when he talked to me you know when you're talking to somebody. I never, I had not met him personally. I had not ever. T- I don't have any recollection of of being face to face at any time with Patrick Daniel O'Neill. This was all set up through the phone. He was by by, also, uh, not by chance. But uh, you need to note that he was the editor of in the in the credits page. He is the editor of Wizard. His uh, <clears throat> his. Uh, He is editor, Patrick Daniel O'Neill, assistant editor, Pat McCallum. And that's it. Above them is publisher and business manager. Publisher, Garib Seamus. Business manager, Martin Schrantz. Okay? So he was the editor. He was the top dog. He's the guy that wanted to interview me. He wanted to interview me. But you can tell when you meet somebody in this, and in this case, over the phone. Very cynical. Very sarcastic. uh, Was, I felt, struggling to take me seriously on any level. And you'll see, I can read some of the questions to you in the calmest manner, and you'll still see that they're semi-aggressive. He says, uh, about a page and a half into it, after I've talked about what Youngblood is about, he says, now we're going to get into the tough stuff. I say, go for it. This is word for word. Now we're going to get into the tough stuff. Liefeld, go for it. Now that we let you plug your project, let's hit the hard questions. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. 
he dwells on this one executioner's ad that we've covered here before. It's, it's, it really doesn't go anywhere. He just really wants to call me out. And, and here's the deal. He's talking about a black and white ad. And some of the things he's saying just don't hold up if you see the ad in color, which he doesn't. You know, on, on No Planet, does a character I created named Wildmane look like Feral? Feral is brown and orange. Wildmane is white and blue. And, and Wildmane is a man. You could actually make a more successful argument that Wildmane and Beast are similar, except Beast is blue and Wildmane wild is, you know, albino. He's white. They're just thick, burly characters, but he's going through trying to con- compare Wildmane to Feral. It's, I'm embarrassed for him. It's, it's stupid. That's why I'm jumping ahead. But in the middle of all this, I said, uh, <clears throat> I'm working with Marvel Comics. I say this is again, June 1992. June of 1992 is when Wizard number 10 is in your hands. And I say, this is Rob Liefeld. I'm working with Marvel Comics. I'm happy. I grew up on Marvel Comics. I was a pretty strict Marvel DC Comics reader. And I always looked at both. But I've learned that Rob Liefeld has to look out for Rob Liefeld. When I am not hot any longer, which should be any day now, do I believe that? Yes, yes, I do. Comic fans are fickle. I think there are things creators do that put them out of favor, like not appear on a regular basis because this is a what have you done for me lately business. Out of sight, out of mind. So when a creator drops out of sight, the the readers will move on to someone else. Anyway, again, this is me talking continuously. When I've had my 15 minutes of fame, I'm going to still need to make a living. I'm going to still need to look out for my family. I have bills to pay. I wanted to create properties that I would own and make the properties important. If I owned cable, we wouldn't be having these discussions. I'm a young guy, 23 years old. Sometimes I think my biggest peak has been my 23rd year. You have to look out for yourself. If anything, I'm just as an, an enthusiastic creator. So I say, if if anything, I'm just an enthusiastic creator who wants to get as much done as possible in the time allotted me. I realize that when the hot period ends, it might actually get more comfortable because then people can judge me on the quality of my work and not on how much money they can make reselling my work. Uh, <clears throat> I said what I I said as far as the resemblance to X Force. Um, is concerned. Suppose that Richard Howell or Jack Kirby or even Mark Bagley had drawn uh, X-Force and the Executioners side by side. I don't think a lot of people would have had the same confusion or the same argument. What ultimately I believe is that Marvel would like to own Todd McFarlane's style, Jim Lee's style, Rob Liefeld's style. I've been a Marvel artist for over three years. I draw things a certain way. Everything I do uh, is very familiar at Marvel because it looks Marvel-esque. That is the way Rob Liefeld draws. If you had any other artist draw these same characters, the resemblance wouldn't be there. But this is the way Rob Liefeld draws faces, the way he draws bodies. You haven't seen the last of this. It's going to happen again and again and again. That summarizes the Executioner story. Marvel told me that I should um, drop those plans. And uh, I said, uh, I don't want to be in a legal battle with them. I put the entire executioners thing on the shelf. I printed up as prints and now they are called the berserkers. So the reason I read you that part is that's, that's a conversation that Tom McFarlane, Jim Lee and I had many times during that period. We had created very unique styles and someday I will do an entire podcast on style and, and the, uh, the appeal and the advantage of having a style, having something be so readily identifiable. The guys that I worked up with and mostly they were guys 
when I've said Vern Miller Simonson, Chaikin, instantly identifiable. I would never, ever think of them as anything close to regarding a house style. The house style at Marvel for the longest time was associated with their art director, John Romita Sr. It was kind of a vanilla E style over time. I believe that there are many artists that, that fit into the John Romita Sr. house style, including his own son, John Romita Jr. But I would also say, especially in the period that we were kind of uh, replacing Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, uh, Paul Ryan was a guy who was doing the Avengers and Fantastic Four. These guys operated in a house style, and maybe some of it had pits, bits and pieces of Kirby. Certainly Kirby. We've talked about Rich Buckler being called a house style artist. Barry Windsor Smith was told he was drawn to draw like Jack Kirby. So prior to John Romita Sr., maybe the house style was Kirby. But when you break out of that and you don't draw like the house style, you have a style. And then that style becomes, if you do your job, indistinguishable from other people. Um, Todd has a very unique style. Jim has a unique style. Wills has a, has a unique style. Larson, myself, Silvestri. And those styles were dominating and being imitated and the stuff that people were um, going after. And when I said a few minutes ago that I was just kind of Rob Liefeld trying to capitalize on Rob Liefeld because Rob Liefeld works were working no matter what. That's kind of what I was getting at. So this is kind of the crux that we, we, we start this with. Wizard said, let's go on to something else. And here it comes. In that interview, there's no context to this. This is really poorly expressed, by the way, looking back at this. I am not eliminating anything in regards to context here. This is all the context he gives. He says, in that interview, about 18 months ago, it says the following, at times, Bob Harris and Rob Liefeld would rework the plots over the phone, even though Liefeld was never given co-plotting credit. Louise Simonson eventually left the title, leaving the writer's position open. Patrick Daniel O'Neill follows up with, here's my question. Do you think it was fair for you and Bob Harris to rewrite a plot when the only name going on as the writer was Louise Simonson and she didn't know anything about the rewrite? Uh, we're going to stop right there and I'm going to give you that interview. I have that open. It's comic scene. Uh, it was released a year. Uh, he says 18 months ago. He's, he's correct. It, this was released in June of 1991. So, He's, he's a little off. This is exactly one year prior that this saw publication. I probably gave it the interview 14 months prior, but it was published uh, you know, a year prior. The name of this comic scene interview, the com- I am the cover of comic scene, which is owned by Starlog, which was a kind of a big corporate uh, entity. They did sci-fi magazines. They had Fangoria. Um, they had all, all manner of different um, uh, all manner of different publications. Uh, yeah, it's it's a Starlog Communications International Corp. Okay, that that did all these magazines. Well, I'm the cover. X Force is the cover. On the cover, it says uh, Rob Liefeld unleashes X Force, and then ob- above it, like a stamp, it says like on a stamped on top of it, New Mutants, no more. New Mutants, no more. So this interview uh, says at the top, New Mutants, no more, and it it uh, it says. Uh, Without those other kids, Rob Liefeld guides Marvel's newest mutants. Again, this is a perfect uh, companion piece to the stuff that I've done with comic kayfabe this this next week. Uh, It opens with me telling the interviews. This is the first paragraph in New Mutants No More in comic scene. Excuse me. This is comic scene number four. Or, ooh, ooh, comic scene spectacular. It's a special edition of comic scene, number four. 
The last set of characters I ever thought I would work on were the New Mutants, says Rob Liefeld. But then again, I guess they aren't the New Mutants anymore. Indeed, the artist enjoyed a short and successful run on the New Mutants. Uh, Marvel has canceled New Mutants with issue 100, and in its place, Liefeld is going to write, pencil, and ink a new title, X-Force. It features essentially the same cast as the New Mutants did in its Twilight issues, plus an entirely new setting and supporting cast of characters. The scripter will dialogue the book, leaving Liefeld the responsibility and control of the large cast of characters. Achieving the status of writer-artist at the early age of 23 took a great deal of hard work, perseverance, and focus. Like most artists in the industry, Liefeld always wanted to draw comics. I, I am quoted here saying, once I left high school, I figured out I wouldn't be something worthy, like a doctor or lawyer. Since I always wanted to draw comics, I sought out the opportunity and decided I wanted to make a living at it. Although he had been drawing for years, Liefeld set aside one year to specifically focus on breaking into the industry. By that time, he had attended junior art, junior college and art classes. He also studied what readers seemed to like in comics and trends in the field. Uh, Liefeld named specific people as influences, Frank Miller, John Byrne, uh, Art Adams, he says that uh, he said uh, a quote um, these days I'm influenced by everyone. I enjoy the work of Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, Paul Smith. After uh, talks about me getting hired, then it says uh, uh, my quote says it's funny when you mentioned that I was a fan favorite at DC. Uh, that the guy says I, the the interviewer calls me a fan favorite. Uh, <clears throat> when you jump over. To Marvel, and when Marvel creators jump over to DC, no one really recognizes you. Kids are surprised that I actually did any work for DC. This is also a true story. Uh, if I can step outside the quote a minute, uh, you know, X Men fans did not know of Hawk and Dove at all. To many Marvel readers, the very first published work I've ever done is X Factor 40. Uh, Rob Liefeld has been working on Marvel's Mutants with editor Bob Harris ever since. Bob has shown a lot of faith in me when others at the time would not. If Bob Harris wanted changes, Rob Liefeld would deliver them. It all started with the creation of the New Mutants New Leader Cable. There was a message left on my machine by Bob, and he said, hey, let's create a teacher of sorts for the mutants. And uh, I thought, okay, I hadn't even received anything closely resembling a first plot, and I already had an assignment. Um, I am quoted here in 1991 in Comic Scene Spectacular saying, Louis Simonson didn't really like the characters, and I can, I can see why. It was a character pushed on her. A little friction between us developed there. I felt her version of Cable was not what she, what he was supposed to be, and it showed. Uh, Liefeld pitched other ideas to the book, The, Mut the Mutant Liberation Front, and uh, I basically took the attitude that I would see how well Cable did before giving up any, of my, any more of my ideas. At times, here it is, here it is, here's what the wizard article is citing at times Harris and Liefeld would rework plots over the phone even though Rob Liefeld was never given formal plotting credit uh Louise Simonson eventually left the title leaving the writer's position open uh Louise had felt that it was the time to move on uh funny as I had just quit the book too things had not gone as I had hoped I was basically drawing a book a group <clears throat> I was basically drawing a book about a group of whining teenagers I wanted more uh, than just a change in the costumes. Uh, when Louise Simonson quit, I realized I finally had the opportunity. Uh, it says, Rob Liefeld asked Bob Harris uh, to write the book, and the rest is history, okay? So, so that is the context of what's going on here with this question. Uh, <clears throat> it says... Uh, it says here, I, I wanted to write the stories. I didn't want to be the one who put the dialogue in the mouths. Again, 
just way too time cons- consuming. The story and the plot are what drives uh, everything. Dialogue can be uh, reflective in a good way. It can be reflective in a poor way, but the plot and the story, for me, this is not from the magazine. I'm talking to you right now in the podcast. The story and the plot are what matter. I had grown up where Len Wein would script Jerry Conway stories, where Marv Wolfman would script Roy Thomas stories, where Chris Claremont would script Len Wein stories, where Len Wein would script George Perez stories. Scripting would come and go. It was a, it was a, every writer I ever spoke to said they enjoyed it because it was a quick buck. It allowed you to go in and, and really just kind of polish what was already laid down with, with, you know, you have the instructions, you have the story right in front of you, then you get to do what called the banter. And, uh, and, and some guys really thrived on that. It's, it's, it's what I was told time and again, it was a great paycheck. The story is where all the work is done. The plot, the character involvement, the conflict, the character, uh, the character conflict, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, subplots, the moving of the pieces, the mysteries, the intrigue, that's all a product of the story. It says, uh, Liefeld writes out each plot. On X-Force, as he did in the closing issues of New Mutants, he sends them to Bob Harris for approval. After that, he does thumbnail sketches of each page and sends copies to the scripter. The scripter and I go over everything on the phone. Then he takes my thumbnails and starts to dialogue them, which then would give me time to do the full art. You know, I'm trying to get the scripter ahead, no matter who that is. Uh, And I had worked with other scripters like Scott Lobdell at the time on some Marvel Comics Presents work. And this was a way I felt... <clears throat> that they could get ahead knowing what I was thinking, having something to look at ver- in terms of the written page, and then seeing everything kind of gestured and, and laid out on the page so that they could come in and then finish it off. Uh, <clears throat> with the 100th issue soon to arrive, Bob Harris wanted to do something special. I had three issues to clean house. But the way the team was by issue 100, I suggested we change the title with issue 101. And after some careful consideration, uh, and sidebar, some real arm, you know, twisting by myself. Uh, the title was changed, and New Mutants would end with 100 and start over with a brand new title, X Force, and the creative team would stay intact. So that's all you need to know from Comic Scene Spectacular. This is the interview that is being cited by Mr. O'Neill. So now you have going back to Wizard and this contentious article, uh, this interview where he says, "Let's go to something else." So now you have context in that. Comic Scene Spectacular number four interview. 18 months ago, it says the following. At times, Harrison Liefeld would rework plots over the phone, even though Liefeld was never given co-plotting credit. Simonson eventually left, leaving the writer's position open. Here's my question to you. Do you think it was fair for you and Bob Harris to rewrite the the plot when the only name going on it was the writer, as the writer was Louis Simonson, and she didn't know about it? So here's my answer. I say, okay, Patrick, ready for a crash course in comics? Do I think it's fair when I draw a cover and John Romita Sr. redraws the face two minutes before it goes to the printer? He redrew Odin's face because it's not how John Romita Sr. thought Odin should look. That doesn't excite me. It angers me because I didn't get a chance to redo it. They didn't even ask me to redo it. There's really only one plot that the comment in the interview refers to. New Mutants 98, uh, 89, I believe. A story called The Gift. The kids are going shopping for a present for rain, and there's a fight with Cable and Freedom Force. Bob and I changed the pace of the story over the phone without changing the content. 
Everything that Simonson had in the plot eventually happened, but instead of the New Mutants meeting Freedom Force and Cable coming to save them, we had Cable meet up with Freedom Force and the New Mutants bail them out. All the same elements happened. They met, which was the most important thing in the story. It was all a deadline thing as well. This is no joke. The mutant books are the freshest books in the market. It's a wonder the ink's not coming off of them as you read them. They are produced very, very last minute. Louise was given a chance to redo the plot, but Bob at the last minute asked me to do it instead. This, ta- this happens all the time. Again, this is me speaking directly. I am reading directly from this Wizard number 10 interview. This was not a one-time occurrence. I have read that John Byrne writes one-page plots for John Romita Jr. on Iron Man. Then J.R. breaks down the whole story. That's one way of doing it. Another way is detailing every single page. Then I, as the artist, have to make decisions, edit stuff down. Even plotting, uh, even plotting my own stuff, I have to edit it down. Turning the page. <clears throat> you can't fit, fit in everything you put in the plot all the time. Everything has to be edited and reworked. This wasn't an episode where we where uh, Louise had a character die and we changed it. It was not an extreme change. Have I had my own plots reworked? Yes. Did I enjoy that? Not really. Do I realize it's part of comic book professional life? Yes. My joke at the time is, where's the new kid who will come in and tell me what to do? It happens. This was not a Bob and I going, ooh, a new Louise plot. Let's rework it. It just didn't flow right. Bob thought it was taking way too long for the kids to get around to buying the gift. I say, you know, it's interesting. Again, reading from the, directly from here. You know, it's interesting. When McFarlane took over the art on Amazing Spider-Man and then moved on to the new Spider-Man title, everyone forgot what a dud Amazing had been years before. The book was sitting on the shelf. There was no heat. There was no excitement. Now let's take that triplet you have with the New Mutants was before I came along. Fact is, it was sliding down sales fast. It's like the sales pole was greased and their name was on it. I've said this before. It would be wonderful if there was a comic book publisher out there just producing comics for our own mutual enjoyment and they don't worry about how much money is made. That's the business They want the comics to sell well. When I was brought in on New Mutants, Bob said, let's do something to shake it up. I wish I had had this recorded. Bob said to me, I want to bring in a new central figure. I want to make him the leader for the mutants. I uh, took what he said and sent him four sketches, incorporating bionic arms, cyborg eye. Bob said, yeah, let's call him Quentin. And I said, no, I, I, I had already put cable down on the name of the sketches. Uh, I told Bob, again, if he's not named Cable, I'm not doing it. Uh, People say I'm difficult. The stuff I push for is important. On Hawk and Dove, I gave Kestrel a costume. They wanted him to be in an overcoat the entire time. They wanted him to be the hitchhiker. I said, no way. Comics is visual. You put spandex on a guy in movies and it looks funny, but in comic books, it's what we expect. It works. I said, you want this guy to be very visceral? Let's give him a costume that portrays that. Uh, They didn't want to show Dove's hair. They wanted a skull cap. They took the absolute worst sketch that I gave them, and the only difference between the old dove and the new one was that the new dove apparently had breasts. I said, come on, she's a woman. Let's give her flowing hair. There's always stuff that I'm going to fight for. Why? Because I'm going to get more enjoyment from it. And I think the mass mass audience that we're reaching will enjoy it as much. Um, in times past, I've told Bob, hey, if anyone should share the creative credit on cable, it's you. Uh, Bob had had to inform Louise that he wanted this character in there. Um, I can understand that she didn't want the character, but the book was dying. It was doing 110,000 sales in a period where the upper tier tier books were averaging uh, 250,000. They had told me at 70,000 units, the book was going to go to direct market only and be off the newsstand. 
I understand the writer wasn't real, was not pleased with how things happened, but there was a reason for it all. It wasn't just let's make hell for the writer. <clears throat> then uh, the 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 interviewer attacks the way I tell pages. He goes, "I'm going to move on to another quote, quoting you directly to me." Pages that excite me have something that draws my eyes to them, call, which I, I'm speaking as Rob Liefeld here in the interview, I'm just reading directly, which I call an anchor. So when I design each of my pages, I try to work in an anchor. Some people say I sacrifice storytelling. I don't, but I do try to make each page visually exciting. I've heard from people who I trust to some extent that a large part of the reason for designing the pages that you do. Now, he has pulled out of the quote, so this is now Patrick Daniel O'Neill. The last part of my quote is, but I try to make each page visually exciting. End of Liefeld quote. Now, the interviewer, Patrick Daniel O'Neill, says, I have heard from people who I trust to some extent that a large part of the way that you are re- designing pages is that you want to sell them in the aftermarket, not necessarily because they're better pages for the comic book. This is not just applied to you, but to many current artists. Liefeld answers, this is my answer, that is simply not true. I can flat out deny that. I have a stack of X-Force and New Mutant art that I d- have not even attempted to sell, just to prove against what you're saying. Um, so again, uh, <clears throat> he then says, uh, the, 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 uh, I mean, I just talk about how Jack Kirby did double page splashes and splashes and no one questioned him again, double standard, uh, young artist being kind of raked over the coals here. This last quote, he, he says, our last quote takes us back full circle to what I began. To, this is the interview to what I felt began in this interview. Liefeld feels the independent market is the best way for him to test whether or not it's his talent in the Mar- or the Ma- Marvel masthead that is selling the comics. When I go to the independents, I want to do the same kind of book that I do for Marvel, and hopefully fans won't be disappointed. The interviewer says, my question, isn't it possible that taking that attitude, you are limiting yourself? Like I'm going to do superheroes because superheroes sell, and you're never going to find out whether or not your style, your name, your ability might attract attention to anything you do, even if it weren't? I said, first of all, this is, I'm really proud of my 23-year-old self. First of all, let me establish, you really don't know me at all. The Patrick Daniel O'Neill says, I'll grant you that, but so how would you know that all, that all I ever wanted to do is superhero books? That's what I enjoy. It's what I enjoyed growing up. It's what I enjoy now in all media. Take in consideration that, when I'm tw- that, that I'm going to be 24 years old. Let's say I hang around this industry for another 20 years, which is very possible. I'll grow with my work. When the time comes and I want to do a serious subject, I'll do it. I don't make decisions based on financial uh, <clears throat> financial aspects. I don't have to do superheroes. I have other ideas that are more sci-fi oriented, more horror oriented, but they're all action-based, fast-paced. That's the kind of work I do. If you are looking for some highly intellectual, thought-provoking, stimulating material, I'm probably the wrong guy to go to. Um, the worst thing that I could do is draw an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. It would put me to sleep. It wouldn't be my best work if I was saying that Youngblood is intellectual fair, then I can see your disappointment. But that is not what I am saying. Uh, I said, uh, Youngblood has a lot in it that's darker and grittier than the standard Marvel comic. And some of that, and and some that's a little lighter than the standard Marvel comic. It's more the kind of comic that I want to do. I am limited to a certain extent as to what I can do on X-Force. X-Force is not the book I grew up wanting to draw. The book that I grew up wanting to draw was The Avengers. X-Force just kind of happened. Cable became bigger than anything that I could have imagined and ran away. We had to run and catch up to him. I created secondary characters who became more popular than the lead characters. Marvel wants to spin them all off. Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't I be a fool to turn that down? It's a good move for my career, but Youngblood is more the book I want to do. Do I like X-Force? Do I enjoy it? Yes, but I probably will enjoy Youngblood a little more at this point in my career. 
I'm not limiting myself yet. If I made a blanket statement that this is what I'm going to do, superheroes for the rest of my life, then I'd certainly be limiting myself. But I think you have to realize there are certain things that people do, and this is what I like to do, not necessarily superheroes, but high action adventure. I'm only in my fourth year of doing comics. I will grow and stretch. I think people should give me some time. So that ends uh, this, this, this particular wizard interview, which again, I'm not sure why it was controversial, but <clears throat> again, I was um, pushed and isolated as, as, as doing something underhanded. Uh, if you were a reader and you were reading that, it's like, well, do you think it's unfair? Basically like something that I did, again, everything that I did at Marvel always had editorial control and editorial approval. Now, here's where we make this even more interesting. We're going to go and uh, look at an excerpt from Louise Simonson and her point of view in all this, because she did give it. She gave it in uh, 1993 in, in a uh, section that was covering the, uh, in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a section that was covering the, uh, I think it was the 30th anniversary of the X-Men. Wizard did a, uh, Wizard, Wizard did a dedicated issue uh, that would celebrate the 30th anniversary of the X-Men. And at the time, obviously, um, they were interviewing people who had worked on the X-Men books before. So as a result, they spoke to Louise. And as you can see, Wizard was really dining out on trying to make everything a little more controversial than perhaps it had any right to be. And so they, uh, uh, they, they made approaching her about her time leaving the book a, a point of interest. And I have excerpts of those pages to share with you so that you can actually get that point of view. Because again, I, I want to give you uh, <clears throat> not only my words, but the words of the others who were involved at the time. So this is from the 1993 X-Men Turn 30 Wizard Collector's Edition. And it says, uh, <clears throat> and again, this is Wizard Magazine, uh, which you you know how I stand. I've done dedicated podcasts uh, ex- explaining Wizard and and their attempts to control the market, dictate tastes. Within about a year, they really realized that wow, we could formulate what what people like. And people have told me how much they invested in Wizard. So it was a really weird time. They absolutely were attempting to lift others up put other people down, tell you your comics were worth less than they were, some more, many worse. So anyway, uh, this this is reading an excerpt from that. Marvel's increased competition on big crossovers and short-term profits eventually led to Simonson's disenchantment with the company and the role she was being forced to play. Her disappointment, her decision to leave Marvel was certainly not easy. What eventually brought her dissatisfaction to the forefront was the hiring of a brash young artist named Rob Liefeld. Liefeld became increasingly hard for Simonson to work with, um, but he was just part of the larger problem. Then now this is a Simonson quote. Marvel had not, Marvel had just been sold. This is a very interesting perspective. You need to hear this. Marvel had just been sold. This is word for word. And the new buyers had a lot of attitudes and policies that I dif- disagreed with. She points out that the books were suddenly being used to make Marvel <clears throat> investors money in the short term with no concern for the long run on the characters. Immediate cash appeared, uh, appeared to be all that Marvel was bought for, to be milked and milked and milked. I think that at that point, anyone who looked like they could produce lots of instant cash for Marvel was likened to a god. And Rob Liefeld looked like he could do just that. Hey, thank you, 
for comparing me to a God I truly, my 23-year-old self especially, uh, appreciates that. That's a sidebar, obviously. This is continuing with Simonson, and Rob Liefeld looked like he could do just that, which was create ca- tons of cash. Again, on in the Wizard article, I mentioned that I would love to think that this was a period where people just made comics for their own pleasure. The comic books have to be profitable on some level. That's why they're in the business of comics. That's why Marvel sold to investors and was suddenly being traded for big bucks on the stock market. He did a pretty good job of selling comics for Marvel until he decided he'd rather sell them for himself. Well, that is a two-year period with millions of dollars of transformation uh, for Marvel. I, I've always said, I, I think that if you had an employee like Robert, Rob Liefeld, uh, you would you would be excited about that employee because he took his job very seriously. He poured everything he could he could into it, and the results speak for themselves. Mul- sales increased on a multiple I don't think they've seen before or since. It continues. <clears throat> Tension between Simonson and her penciler and editor Harris made working for Marvel untenable. Rob was unhappy with the way the stories were going and wanted someone else to write them. Um. She says, although I was not fired, I was being shoved out the door. Bob Harris was only doing what he had to do, which was to make Rob Liefeld happy, or try to. It obviously didn't make Rob Liefeld all that happy, she, re- she observes, referring to Liefeld's decision to eventually leave X-Force, the book that Marvel created for him, and he struck out on his own with Image. It just goes to show, she laughs. Simonson believes this fixation on short-term profits is even more prevalent at Marvel now. She sees a definite trend on the part of the business people and the editors who are charged with implementing business policy. She feels they are creating, they are treating freelancers as interchangeable, citing problems other writers have experienced with Bob Harris. It kind of turns into a Bob Harris hit piece, and you guys all know that I think he's great. She says, my problems were not so much with Rob Liefeld because all freelancers are greedy. <clears throat> Thank you. I was just identified <laughs> by a, fe- a fellow peer as being greedy and like to grab what they can, and that's fine. I was an editor for a time. I know how that works. My problem was really with the editor who was not handling things well at all. It's up to the editor to choose the people who will work on any given problem, uh, any given project, and let them know when their services are no longer needed. I think that Bob was not willing to make those decisions. What he did to me, what he did to Chris Claremont, what he did to Peter David, and what he did to Joe Duffy was to nickel and dime us to death. He would change plots, blame it on the artist. He would change dialogue and say, I'm sorry, I tried to call you and you weren't home. I'll be sure to tell you the next time. He would change some of the dialogue, but not other parts of the things people were saying wouldn't make sense. It was his way of letting you know that he was wishing that you would walk away. She took the hint and left, and DC editor Mike Carlin, uh, she took up DC editor Mike Carlin on his offer to write a fourth Spider-Man book. Um, and uh, maybe it was la- it was time to say goodbye to the mutants anyway. Uh, Louise then was part of a one of the biggest, if not the biggest, and it's literally, uh, DC Comics fans will tell you it is still the biggest corporate move they ever made. She went just, in, in terms of power, greed, corporate comics, profits, investors, uh, she was part of the team that killed Superman in a multi-part crossover that crossover into in every possible Superman book, including other DC comic books. It was hugely successful. Dan Jurgens was kind of the guy at the fore, but Jerry Ordway and, and Louise John Bogdanov were other people involved in other Man of Steel, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, all these books tied in. It made DC millions, and it was all part of a, uh, once they killed Superman, they, they saw how well it did. They, they threw a months-long funeral, and then they planned for a year-long event that would return uh, Superman from the dead, having you know killed him. And in recent years past, they have returned to that as an anniversary point. It was one of the, if not biggest, corporate uh, 
corporate comic book events uh, ever produced in the history of comics, certainly since I've been around. Now, I got this from a gentleman who posted this in my Rob Liefeld message group, and he said, here's an excerpt from the 1993 X-Men uh, 30th Anniversary Wizard, Wizard Collect- Collect- uh, Collector's Edition. They are definitely weaving their own narrative here. My favorite line is from the writer who mentions the accusatory crash gab, accusatory cash grab statement made by someone who immediately crossed the street and was part of a team who killed Superman because DC was making a cash grab of their own. Ironic, I did not write that. A gentleman named John Michael Snyder, if you appreciate being cited as the source, I hope you do, um, he brought that to my light. I thought that should be read as a part of this where we cover comic scene number four, comic scene spectacular number four, Wizard Magazine number 10, and now this Wizard 30th Anniversary 1993 edition. Look, Sometimes people don't get along. Sometimes people make way for others along the way and other people step in and make new magic happen and they summon, uh, you know, lightning and thunder. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a phrase called they strike gold. Sometimes people, whether it's players, they stay too long. Uh, I read articles every day. How long is Damian Lillard going to stay in Portland? He's been dedicated to them, but someone of that talent is not being rewarded for it. And, and it, is, it is possible. He is going to stay too long. In the NBA, I told you, Pau Gasol was traded from the Grizzlies, uh, you know, to the Lakers just in time for his career. He was in his peak. Anthony Davis, again, found the Lakers in his prime. LeBron in his prime went to the heat. Okay? Uh, Players can sometimes stay too long in one place, and we all know the ones who do, and they uh, kind of are in danger of living out their expiration date or, you know, uh, th- th- there's huge friction. Like when Joe Montana did not want to give up the lead quarterback position in San Francisco and ultimately uh, was removed in, in favor of Steve Young, who then went on and win, won multiple Super Bowls as well. And maybe that is more along the lines of what we're talking about. Certainly, uh, Louise Simonson wrote tremendous, amazing comics. She edited X-Men at a key part of my adoration for the franchise. Um, we didn't really talk much. We didn't have a whole lot of interaction. Uh, the book that I took over was not the book that I produced. I mean, if you look at the issues prior to me, I produced a completely different book. I've had people say, I ruined the, the New Mutants. If I did, I'm sorry. If that, that was your favorite book, and, and to some people, I'm sure it was. Um, because even people I loathe, like Mike Carlin, uh, have wisdom. And he told me once, you know, the lowest selling book that we cancel is someone's favorite title. And he is true. I have many titles that are some of my favorites that stopped being published. OMAC by Jack Kirby, Commandy by Jack Kirby, The Champions by Marvel Comics, which was being drawn by John Byrne at the time. I, I understand what they're talking about. So, so there was a group of fans who really loved the New Mutants and it changed. But I wanted something that reflected more of the giant excitement going on in the X-Books all around it, all above it. X-Men sold better. Excalibur sold better. Wolverine sold better. X-Factor sold better. Every new book that was introduced just pushed the New Mutants further and further down the food chain. I love my time on that book. I hope this gives you some greater clarity. Uh, Cable, the Mutant Liberation Front, all of these characters represented a new age. And we didn't look for the approval of the other freelance talent on the book. Again, I was a freelancer. I didn't have a contract. You know, I understood my rules that if I created characters, I had creative participation in them for the life of those characters. I understood that. I read that. Even if they had to be shared, which was, you know, uh, some of the characters that I introduced in New Mutants 87, 
or characters that were advertised in promotional uh, pages for Youngblood. When I was doing Youngblood with Megaton Comics in 1986, 87, and 88, I was building that comic book for them because I owned Youngblood. I created Youngblood. And there are characters on the Mutant Liberation Front that were in all those Youngblood stories that I created and owned. But once they cross the street to Marvel, suddenly they're co-owned. It's weird. But you know what you're doing. You understand the rules. You submit them. I sold them to Marvel. I knew the deal. And it represented a new age. And if that new age was difficult, I understood it. There was a reason I wouldn't tell all of Cable's secrets. I didn't want to reveal that Cable was Strife from the future, okay? That, 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 that Cable had ties to Strife, that Cable, uh, you know, his true identity. I kept that to myself. I didn't want to give certain things away until I was in complete control and you couldn't blame me, especially given the friction that was going on. What happened with Strife uh, the big reveal at the end of New Mutants 100, as I say on the comic kayfabe interview, took Marvel by shock. Uh, the reveal with Domino took Marvel by shock. I was playing my my cards close to, to the vest because, um, like I said, I felt like there was Bob Harris, who was my editor. Uh, in some ways, Jim Lee was managing the X office. I had to be very careful with the information that I let out. I wanted my twist, my turns, my character reveals, my character creations to be unique and to work for me in the best possible way. Otherwise, why do them? And so that's why I did them. Uh, I figure I've covered enough feuds. I had to cover my own, and I did. And and this this episode was part of it. So that controversial Wizard number ten, that cover that um you know I'm very grateful that Marvel released to this day uh, because it exists and it only exists because they signed off on it. Apparently there was a big there was a lot of anger. But again, why I didn't understand. Frank Miller was doing. Electra and, and Batman on the same cover. George Perez did all the Marvel stuff he did and all the DC stuff he did on the same cover illustration. It was it was like there were new rules. We represented a different, uh, you know, a different age for them. And and I'm not sure that they knew how to manage us just yet. And, and sometimes there was friction. Certainly there was friction with the creative team. Uh, I think it all worked out for the best for everybody involved. I, I truly believe that. And I think, uh, I think you can mitigate like the damages done uh, again. Uh, uh, there was brand new paths for the people who left. And uh, for myself, I was given the chance to I, look at it as a house. I flipped it. I took the new mutants. I, I, I gave it a new paint job, new new windows, new furniture, uh, built out different rooms, and and we flipped it and, and it succeeded. I'm super proud of it, but I am not above acknowledging all the tension. Hopefully you have some context today by pulling in the comics scene, spectacular interview quote unquote, that interview, and you kind of understand everything. And again, sharing Louise Simonson's quotes uh, about how she felt at that time. Bob Harris, great manager, great general manager, saw talent, understood talent, knew that the X-Men books needed a shakeup. It worked out to millions and millions and millions of copies sold across X-Men, New Mutants, X-Force, X-Factor, all of it. It was, Mutant Genesis was maybe the most profitable endeavor marvel ever undertook and that's all because of the vision that bob harris had to recreate the x-men image and give a bunch of young guys like myself their shot and i will always be appreciative of it as appreciative as i am of the fact that you listen to this entire episode again on cartoon kayfabe cartoonist kayfabe i think i called it comics kayfabe forgive me cartoonist kayfabe i am uh doing two episodes Going over New Mutants 87, going over New Mutants 98. I, I do it with Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg. We have a really good time. Check those out. Come back here. Fill in the gaps. I'll be here for you. Thanks again for hanging. So I couldn't resist uh, after after the sign-off, checking out 
the rest of this Wizard magazine. Uh, again, interesting things to know. June 1992, they are promoting the arrival of Spawn Number One. So this this is uh, Spawn Number One has not hit yet. Youngwood Number One has hit. And just just to give you again a, 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 a timing of how everything's going on, but again, Wizard had really been putting the guys who would form Image Comics at the front and center. Prior to this, there was an Eric Larson cover, there was a Todd cover, there was a Jim cover, I think there was a Wills cover. All of the image founders are doing covers, are you know regularly uh, participating in Wizard and helping them become ex- extremely successful. If you go back uh, to some of the popular columns and lists that the Wizard was doing at the time, again, Wizard number 10 here, they would do a Wizard top 10 hottest heroes and villains. Well, what do you know? <clears throat> The number one hottest character in comics at the time is Cable. Number one, Cable. No surprise here as Life... Excuse me. Number one, Cable. No surprise here as Life Elves. Bionic Bad Boy has been virtually burning up every other chart. Here at the Wizard, the mysterious Cable first appeared in New Mutants 87 and can be found each and every month as the leader of X-Force. Expect a miniseries Featuring Cable in the summer of 1992. The uh, rest of the characters are Wolverine number two, Venom number three, Sabretooth is number four, and Spider-Man is number five. Ghost Rider, Punisher, Archangel, Bishop, and Carnage round out round out the bottom five. In the comic book department, New Mutants 87 is the number two most popular comic book. And it says, uh, Liefeld is not only become one of Comicdom's hottest creators, but he's instrumental in the forming of Image Comics, the hot new comic book company. And we all know how Cable is blowing up. So, uh, while their editor is sparring with me, my character is number one, my book is number two, and uh, interestingly enough, in the top artist, I am listed as the number three uh, top artist in the comic book world. So we are off to a good start. This is 10 issues in. And as I said, the relationship that I had with, with uh, wizard was one where they were regularly, uh, showering praise, showering praise. Uh, interestingly enough as well in the comic book market, watch books to watch the comic book, the comic book selections that they have that you should have on your radar is no less than uh, listed. They would list a number of of comics and they would tell you, hey, you know, you got to get these. You got to be watching out for these. And uh, in their market watch list, the comic that they pick is X-Force number eight. X-Force number eight. you know, so so very well, very well represented in in this wizard. Uh, and again, the big the big controversy. I, you just it's it's funny. Like I said, this uh, Patrick Daniel O'Neill just just wanted to take me to task and and kept referring to me as controversial. And at that point in time, much like my my entire career, I had really done nothing controversial. But you can see the narrative was starting to form. This young hothead whippersnapper control freak whatever. All in all, I think it worked out, 
And I am uh, so thankful, honestly, uh, that that entire opportunity was presented to me in the first place. So just wanted to give you a, a just kind of round out the entire uh, way that everything had been depicted up until now. So you further get the context because again, throughout this uh, this entire you know interview, it's just uh, context was sorely consistently missing. And so hopefully you get that. If you're going to have feuds, you got to report on the entire feud. I hope today we gave you a, a, as complete a picture as we possibly could. You know that at the end of each and every episode of Rob's Observation, I read the reviews that you have left for me. And I am so thankful. Once again, got to tell you, the fact that you guys uh, summon up the, 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 uh, you know, you, you, you hit the button to leave a review, you write a review, you, you choose the stars and you hit send is heartwarming to me. It is touching. It is, uh, above and beyond. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I read those reviews at the end of each and every episode as I'm about to today here at the end of today's episode, we have one from Canada from a good friend, Gavalkos. Gavalos, Gavalos, sorry, got a little, got a little, uh, carried away there. GK, A-V-A-L-O-S. Again, leaving it, uh, from, from the Apple podcast Canada. He is very generous. He or she, uh, says very entertaining, gives us five stars. Thank you again. Super excited to receive that. Super humbled, uh, excited to share. It says really nice to hear the making of from the artist creator's perspective uh a great podcast companion to the cartoonist kayfabe videos which talk about comics and isn't that ironic given that today we are kind of dovetailing in between each other again the uh the cartoonist kayfabe videos that i've done uh both are going to be airing around the time of this original podcast of course this podcast is going to get logged into the system and then over over time you know it won't be as relevant in, in regards to me trying to wedge this in between these two car, cartoonist kayfabe issues, uh, episodes where I speak about New Mutants 87 and New Mutants 98. I'm going to tell you the cool thing about, about what Ed and Jim, and then since the New Mutants 87 one aired, I've read a lot of uh, commentary that, that, that is favored alongside what they said, and, and they expressed to me, they said, Rob, we weren't picking up New Mutants. We were buying Spider-Man. Both of them said they weren't even buying any of the X-Men books because there was too many of them and they didn't want to enter into that world. But New Mutants 87 was their gateway. It was their gateway drug. They they liked the cool um, looking cable and who are these kids? Who is this character? And they they took a they took a shot and they never, you know, they never looked back. I've had people tell me X-Force was their entry uh, level because again, I think the one thing that X-Force had going for it, it was more of commando mutants, right? They had guns, they had swords, rifles you know, um, all manner of weapons, which I've, I've broken down in several different podcasts, how I loved my weaponized heroes, starting with Wolverine. I think it's why he was the breakout. That's what I figured out in my brain. I liked my characters with, with, uh, with, with weapons. And, and, you know, I, I, even, even the super powered characters throughout the history of, you know, comic books. I mean, Thor is ridiculously strong Hulk level, but he has a hammer. And he'll pummel with pummel you with it. He will pummel you with it. So 
that always, you know, appealed to me. So uh, it's interesting in reading other people's reviews who have uh, shared since the podcast, <clears throat> and literally even in the time that I recorded part one of this, and they have uh, talked about that New Mutants 87 was the introduction to their interaction. This is their words from Rob Liefeld, a gentleman named Galileo Tan. And he said uh, his friend called him up, told him about a book that he just bought and how cool it was. And Galileo says, I thought he was joking when he said that it was an issue of the New Mutants. Because at that time, no one in our circle of friends that read comics thought New Mutants was cool. Then I saw the cover and I was blown away. Who's Cable? Who's Rob Liefeld? And then Galileo goes on to say that since then, from New Mutants to X-Force to Image and Extreme, he says, uh, Rob Liefeld has been on my Mount Rushmore. I, again, very grateful to you for saying that, Galileo. The reason I'm sharing this with you is you, again, what I started to say at the beginning, you, you grow up and you realize things differently. Like I said with Pau Gasol, 10 years later, coming back, getting his, uh, having his retirement ceremony, having his jersey put in the rafters and, and, and queuing him up for the Hall of Fame, which he was just announced as. It puts your perspective in a different career. Sometimes you see things, you know, in retrospect that maybe you didn't catch. And again, catching from Ed and Jim, Jim Rugg, both who are, you know, were teenagers at the time, and them telling you, being me in this instance, that New Mutants was their gateway, that me on the New Mutants was the first time they'd ever, ever interacted with, with the comic. And so many others have expressed that to me. And again, that explains our jolt in sales. That explains why the book went up. People who were coming from other comics had been hearing about it and they jumped on. And uh, I'm not sure that anything remotely like that has been done uh, since that time. I was going for the same vibe that I got from Frank Miller on Daredevil. Turn you onto a character and a book that maybe people had overlooked. And so it's great to hear all these people, Galileo, Ed, Jim, uh, so many others who've been contacting me on social media and telling me as a result of these videos and these podcasts, you know, Rob, this is the stuff, this is, this is when I started to form a bond with the X-Men, with the, with the mutant books. And it was through New Mutants, through this, this time period. So it's very exciting. And I thank you very much. And again, uh, thank you for leaving the reviews. I'm, I'm always so thrilled to read them. In regards to social media, it's a way that we all connect. I am all over social media. You can catch me on Twitter. I'm Robert Liefeld, the full name. Uh, the blue check stuff is so out of whack. I, I feel like it'll be gone any day. And uh, just catch me at, at Robert Liefeld. I used to wave around, oh, I'm, I'm verified. that I think that's you know not going to be the case much longer uh, because I, I've chosen not to participate in the manner that has been laid out uh, in order to keep it. So I, every day I expect it to go, but then just look at, look at me at, at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I'm, I'm waxing nostalgic and having fun with the blue check because bottom line, if you just get the name right, uh, you, you'll, you'll nail it. You'll see it's me. I love talking to you, getting your replies, your DMs, um, all the interactions we have on Twitter. Thank you so much. Follow me at Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Love hanging out with you guys on Instagram. I photo dump of my life. Um, what I'm eating, where I'm walking, vacationing, hanging out with my family, my kids, my wife, uh, what I'm drawing, stuff I'm working on, toys, uh, unboxings. I do it all on Instagram. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Again, same thing with the blue check. Who knows? Could be gone tomorrow. But right now I have it at Rob Liefeld. will tell you that it's really me. 
Love, again, hearing from you, your comments, your DMs, your messages. Thank you so much for interacting with me on Instagram. Uh, Appreciate you so much for following me and uh, interact with me. I love hearing from you guys. It is such a blast. There is an app. It's called Whatnot. It's a collectible app. People sell all manner of cool stuff on there from trading cards to um, playing cards to collectible sports cards to sports gear to kicks, jerseys, uh, comic books, toys, Funkos. I'm in the comic book toys Funko kind of category when I share my stuff. If you follow me on Whatnot at Rob Liefeld, you got to download the app, sign on, follow Rob Liefeld. I generally do two shows a week, kind of now in spring vacation, uh, dialing it down to maybe one a week for the, for, for, for the um, next small window. But if you follow me, you'll be notified when my shows go live. And when my shows go live, it's me looking directly into the camera and talking to you the entire time. Quite often, I'm sitting in a big giant beanbag. I just need to be relaxed. And I share with you the comics, the Funkos. I sketch on them. I remark them. We do all manner of different uh, custom signatures. Uh, there's the drop shadow chisel, chisel the the blood splatter chisel. Uh, the chisel is my Liefeld uh, signature that you see on the covers. We call that the chisel. I do all manner of different uh, versions of that on, on Funkos, on comics, on toys. I also sell original art. Please follow me on whatnot. Interact with me. People say it's an extension of this uh, podcast. It's a little... It's a little more unhinged because uh, I'm kind of, sometimes I'm on there for three hours straight just talking to you and, and, and uh, you, you are watching as I lose my mind. I invite you to watch me lose my mind and, um, and see it, the different stuff I'm sharing over on whatnot. Uh, again, really kind of down to a Wednesday show uh, during this period, but generally it's, it's Wednesdays and Saturdays um, under normal conditions. Over on Facebook, I want to invite you. I have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld. Marvel Extreme and Beyond, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It's where we continue conversations like this, where we share podcasts, the the cartoonist kayfabe uh, videos, where we share comics, toys, uh, all manner of stuff. The conversation continues there. I would invite you to join. Uh, we are clicking through people all the time, either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will click you through. That's how you know you've reached the right group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond is the group you're looking for. We would love to see you. We would love to interact with you. You guys know at the end of the show, I wish you nothing but the very best. I want your spiritual health, your mental health, your physical health, and your emotional health to be in the best place possible. This last weekend, uh, after all sorts of different uh, personal issues that's been going through my family, my wife and I just took a day off, uh, went down to the beach, hung out, went to art supply stores, candy stores clothing stores, had a great meal, both had incredible pasta. Uh, my wife enjoys a good cocktail. I, uh, I down whatever flavored water I can get my hands on. Boy, oh boy, that candy store. Uh, I literally, there, there is a killer candy store down in Laguna Beach. And uh, I'm telling you, they have everything. They have old school, European, um, all manner. And, and I, I literally have just figured that candies, candy, candy and comics. That may be the spinoff podcast, Candy and Comics. That's all I need. That's all I really need. Uh, give me, give me, a, give me a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup or give me a, a, an Aero Bar, those Hershey's Aero Bars. Oh my gosh. They are like so bubbly with the air pockets and the chocolate. Oh, uh, the Malos, the, the, oh man, there, there's all manner of stuff. We got, we, we loaded up on candy cigarettes too. Look, what am I trying to say? Take some time, get out, get away. Um, from the normal grind, read a comic, read a novel, watch a movie, watch a streaming show, uh, go out with your wife, your girlfriend, your friends, your family, hug them, laugh, get some sunshine, whatever you need to break away, uh, 
and and get that get that kind of resurgence and, and recharge your batteries. I'm rooting for you. I'm hoping that uh, that that's something that is in your grasp, and you're going to either make it happen or just made it happen, and are waiting for the next cycle. Do it regularly. Take care of yourself. It's been a crazy, crazy. Good God, it's been a crazy decade, and there's still more to come. So uh, I am rooting for you, lifting you up, fist bumping you through this podcast, and cheering you on. Please come back around. I'll be here waiting to interact because we will most definitely, absolutely, and you know it, inevitably, talk again real soon.